With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatton the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. Welcome back, Fight Fans, to BTR Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Basto, joined, as always, by Johnston Brown for another special episode of the podcast. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on British fighters who have gone overseas and put on an absolute masterclass of a performance to go and either win a world title or just basically stamp their authority in the boxing world and cause upsets in the process. But before we get into this episode, of course, please go and check us out on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and the Facebook page is BTR Boxing Podcast. If you've not already subscribed to the podcast, please go and do it. Check us out on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Player FM, TuneIn, basically wherever you get your podcasts, go and check us out. Search BTR Boxing Podcast. And if you've not checked out all the other series that we run, we've got the Legendary Knights series, the Career Profiles series, ones to watch. And in May, we've got a brand new series coming into your ears. Fantastic. Not going to let anything loose just yet, but I'm telling you now, it'll blow your socks off. So without further ado, let's get into this episode of BTR Boxing Podcast. This is The Brits Abroad. So today's episode then, Johnston, we're looking at British fighters that have gone abroad against the odds. Sometimes not always the odds, but most of the time against the odds. And put on a performance that has left us all with mixed emotions of either elation or frustration. But ultimately, this episode is all about these British fighters that we've seen go abroad over all these years and do something so significant that it's left us a lasting memory in the sport. Yes, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, they are 
hugely significant fights for for the British boxing fans. And we, we've tried our best to try and tick as many as we could. We've got a, a very a very good list. I'm sure we've missed probably a couple, but I do believe we've got the significant ones in. And, and as you say, some of these nights are, you know, they were before we were even born, Sean. But yet we we both still find ourselves looking back on these fights, and, and, and you could feel the emotion and. And just from the commentary for the fighters after, um, and just watching the fights, and some of these guys pulled off some heroic performances, and it's just great to have a little look back on on these fantastic performances for British fighters. The way we're going to do it in is we've got a set ten fights that we've that we put together, a collation of, of our opinion of, of ten of the fights that we really find significant for our boxing history. But then also we've got our notable mentions that have just fell outside our top 10 but doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't be in your top 10 and then we've also got our nearly men section as well obviously we've had so many great fighters travel to so many different countries and just be so close to getting that big victory abroad but for whatever reason it's just not gone their way or they've been robbed or whatever it may be so we've got a little section at the end called the nearly men but we're going to start in no particular order with this list of the top 10 best fights involving British fighters that have gone abroad. And the first one is one that we've covered for our Legendary Nights podcast. If you've not already heard it, go and check it out. This is the tale of Prince Nazim and Kevin Kelly. Now, one that we thoroughly enjoyed doing for our Legendary Nights series, but one in which still sticks out in my mind because of how significant it was to Prince Nazim Hamed's career at this point. They've done a little documentary recently on Sky about that little trip over to the USA. It was Nazim Hamed's American debut and an absolute stonker of a fight involving so many knockdowns that they called it the elevator fight for sure. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Nazim, we all know how good he was over here. We all watched him uh, on national television and he'd become a star, obviously hadn't in America and he wanted to break America and this was obviously his American debut. And he went into that fight, what, 28-0 and against Kevin Kelly. It was 47-1-2 and in Madison Square Garden in New York on the 9th of December, 1997. And, and this, as you say, was Prince Nazim's American debut and, and it almost ended in a complete disaster for him, let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've done the legendary nights, we're going to go digging, like, literally round by round, but Hammond was down in the first, down in the second and down in the fourth. Thankfully for him, Kelly went down in the second and then twice in the fourth, which was the eventual round where he managed to stop it. Right hand by Hamid. Kelly a little slow to respond here. you got to be careful mixing up with Kelly because he can fight. And that's going to be ruled a knockdown as Nassim's glove grazed the canvas. So there's the count for that. Third knockdown of Hamed by Kelly. And the Nassim advocates in the crowd boo that. Hard left hand by Kelly. And a right hand shot. Leaping right hand by the Prince. And a hard left. And Kelly's down for the third time. And he is definitely hurt. He's and the for real. fight is over. He's for real. The Prince is for real. punching power, George. And, it, I mean, it was just a brilliant fight, wasn't it? It really was just yeah. great to watch. You know, I mean, as I, I, I mentioned before, I wasn't. I, I enjoyed watching Naz. Um, it's only probably now where I really appreciate how good he was. At the time, I, I felt it was a bit of a cocky little shit, and I didn't really <laughs> want to too much. So, in the back of my mind, I sort of opened over 
with Kevin does him. Um, not in, you know, I'm a British fan, and in the day, it doesn't necessarily matter. I'm always going to support our guys, so I'm glad he got the win. You know, I've matured a bit now. So, yeah, legendary night. Please check it out, and it is a great one, and, and a fantastic performance for a Brit over in America. Yeah, it really, really was. Great, fun, fun memories of, of that particular fight, and that particular period of time as well was, was fantastic. So, we're moving on. We fast forward to 2014 on August the 16th. And it was Kelbrook finally going forth for a world title shot against Showtime Sean Porter at the StubHub Centre in Carson. Brook, at this point in time, we knew he was world level. We knew he was capable of, of fighting for a world title. We just didn't know whether he was going to be able to go on and achieve that glory of getting the world title. And I think coming into that fight, he, he was an underdog because Sean Porter had a great career going into the fight. And probably the better resume going into the fight as well at the time against Brooks' resume. So people probably felt like he could probably go over there, put a good performance on it, and come away and still rise his stock as a fighter. But I don't know if there was a hell of a lot of people that truly, truly believed that Kelbrook would go and beat Sean Porter that night. But what came of it was was obviously a fantastic night for Kelbrook as he as he, he did really well. And I think Ultimately, in that fight, I think his his skill, his timing, his control of the tempo throughout that fight was what won him the IBF welterweight title, his first welterweight title of his career. And it was a close fight, but it was a well-deserved victory. And it was the start of what was to be a, a bit of a mixed bag of tricks for Kelbrook. Obviously, now we're in 2020 and we've got our own sort of thoughts on, on where his career is at at this moment in time. But back then... This was huge. This was an unbelievable victory for him. It, it was, and, and I think as well, you touched on the fact that Kelbrook obviously is still active. He's looking for the second lease. I think now, at this moment, I think that's why they sort of edges some of, some of the other fights out there into the top 10 for me personally, because the fact is, I think now you can really understand just how much of a big win that was against Sean Porter, considering what Sean Porter's gone on to do. And, and Sean Porter has proven that, you know, he's actually got better of age himself. So I think now, in retrospect, we can actually look at this and actually realise that that was a really good win. And in America as well, against an American, which is no, you know, it's not easy to do. You do need to more or less win a fight convincingly. Now, the same if, if an American come over here, they, they you would need to win it sort of head and shoulders, really, to, to make sure you get that nod. And then he did. And as you say, first world title. And, and I believe it was a very, very good win from, from, from Kel from another Brit and a good performance, really good performance against a good fighter like, like Sean Porter, who's a spoiler. Ladies and gentlemen, after 12 rounds of action, we go to the scorecards. Judge of ringside, Dave Paris scores the mount 114 to 114. Dave Paris sees it a draw. Overruled by judges Max DeLuca, he scores the bout 117 to 111. That's and a shot, Adelaide man. Bird, who scores the bout 116 to 112, in favor of the winner by majority decision. And the new. It's Kelbrook! It's Kelbrook's night! Just look at that reaction! Astonishing performance! Absolutely. So, another one in our top 10 is one I've wrote about recently for ESBR Boxing. This was an article I really enjoyed putting together 
and it was way, way back in 1980 when Alan Minter travelled to Caesars Palace in Las Vegas to take on then-champion Vito Antifermo. Now, Vito Antifermo was a name you may recognise if you've been listening to the podcast and the other series that we run for a while because he has come up in the Marvin Hagler career because he obviously fought Marvin Hagler and he's come up in the Legendary Knights as well. So, Vito Antifermo is no mug. He was the guy that went on to get the WBA and WBC middleweight championships, then go on to defend against Marvin Hagler in in Marvin Hagler's big title fight, only to come away with a split decision draw against Marvin Hagler. And the fight against Alan Minter was uh, his next fight. So the little backstory to, to, to this one then was the Marvin Hagler fight, as we know, was a controversial draw. And there basically was controversy after the fight because... You had Bob Arum, who wanted an immediate rematch, but then you had the WBC president, Jose Suleiman, who was saying, no, the next available number one contender is going to be Alan Minter. So until he's fought Alan Minter, we're not going to be defending the title against Marvin Hagler again, which was interesting when looking back on this. So going back to to this particular one then, Johnston, it was before our time, but it's one we've obviously done research on and one we've looked back on and watched. Just talk me through your interpretation of, of this night. Well, I think I think for me, like you say, Vito Antifermo, he had that fight with Hagler. It was a, it was a dodgy decision, really. I felt Hagler probably deserved it. He got the draw. End of the day, he fought Minter. Now, this, it was a close fight. and It was a very close fight. And the interpretation of it was that, you know... The, those that were watching and those that have seen on YouTube, I mean, the, the 17 writers that covered the fight, basically, I mean, 10 of them had Antifero winning the fight, five had Minter, and two scored it a draw. I think, I think the problem was with the scoring where one of the officials had it, one four five one four three to Antifero, and then one four four one four one to Minter. Now, those scorecards are not that wide. They, they, you know, they aren't massively different. You could probably see where those scores come from. I think the problem was, was that was Roland Dakin who scored it one four nine one three seven to to Minter and I, it does make me laugh because you don't very you very rarely see that where a judge will where he was a British judge but favourably went Minter's way which was harsh on the firmer. It was you know end of the day it was a very close fight. The Minter did go down in the fourteenth. I mean by what I've seen and what I've read, I believe that and the probably deserved to get it. Not that it matters, and the Minter got the win and and Vito. You know, he got lucky against Hagler. It's, it's just the way it goes. I think for me, the reason why it was such a big win is because Minter hadn't really fought at world level. He hadn't. He hadn't fought for a world title. He had fought tough opponents in the Neil Griffin and Kevin Finnegan. Um, and he also had the problem where Angelo uh, Giacopucci actually died from injury sustained in the ring, which was two years before it. Obviously got to play on his mind. But um, it was a good scrap from what I've seen and what I've read. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's a big win for Alan Minter to do that in Las Vegas. So, you know, that has to has to make the top 10. Well, it's one that definitely secured his legacy, winning the WBC and WBA middleweight championships, which were the two main championships around at that time. So, essentially, he was the unified champion by beating Vito Antifermo. So, yeah, it was definitely a big win and one that definitely goes up there. And one that, as I said, I thoroughly enjoyed writing about because it was one of them fights where I think people completely forget about one of these victories like this where a Brit has gone abroad and actually upset the apple cart. Alan Minter was an underdog in this fight. It was 4-1 to one on for Vito Antifermo to actually win the fight. It was it was 
you know, quite a given that he was going to go in there and, and pick up the victory. But for Alan Minter to walk away with the victory and the judges scorecard, the British judges scorecard was absolutely ludicrous. I remember looking back at that and thinking to myself, this is just the one time you want you want the British judges to get it right and they don't get it right. And then, then there's one time where they really get it wrong, but they put it in the right man's favour. It's just, yeah, it's just looking back on it just made me laugh about when you always see these scorecards and you always get the one that's always really, really off from the other two. And this was a prime was example of it. Bad. Yeah, it was. It was proper bad, that one. Proper bad one. It's good. I, I hate to say it, but I mean, we've had some dodgy ones go out, go against us. So I sort of, it does make me chuckle because it's nice to have that, especially over in Vegas where you would have expected it to go the other way. So, hey, you know, it, it, it's, it's a win. It, it, it unified a division. So good for Alan, although he's going to lose to Hagler. It's true, he did. He did go on to lose it to Hagler. Next up then. One that's very, very recent and is very fresh in the memory of boxing fans is Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder 2. So, as we know, 22nd of February, earlier this year, Tyson Fury goes over for the rematch to Vegas to take on Deontay Wilder. And I think many doubted Tyson Fury was going to be able to go in there and stop Wilder and knock him out. They all thought it was going to be Fury points or Wilder knockout. That was literally the general consensus about this particular fight. But what entailed was... It's the stuff legends are made of, really. I think we might not appreciate this fully now, but I think in 10 years' time, maybe when all this is said and done, the Wilders, the Furies, the Joshuas have all retired and moved on in their lives and their careers, I think that's when boxing fans will truly appreciate Tyson Fury going over to Las Vegas and absolutely pulling the pants down and destroying Deontay Wilder. I could not believe what I was watching. I knew right there watching that fight that I was I was watching history being made. That's how I felt. Shouts from the Fury fans of you, Big Dosser, that he's still looking for that right hand, Wilder. And that's hard. You see Wilder there turning everything into those shots and missing. And that brings your energy also. Oh, right hand down the middle. The towel's in. They thrown the towel in. The fight's all over. The fight's all over. They've thrown the towel in from the Wilder corner. And Tyson Fury is the heavyweight champion of the world. One of the most phenomenal comebacks from goodness knows where. Two or three years ago, he is now top of the pile with one of the great heavyweight performances I have ever seen in 30 years covering this sport. Tyson Fury tonight was quite brilliant and he is heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah, I'm with you. Like you say, I suppose with time, we will start to understand just how much of a good win it was. I mean... The reason why, I mean, it makes the top 10 with ease. I mean, many some people probably had this, from what I've put their list together, and it's been almost sort of in the top three. And the reason why it's a little bit lower for me, in my in, in my personal perspective of it, is that is, is that Wilder, although he had a 42-0 record with the one draw in that, that dubious first fight, you know, I think he's, I think the problem is, is that I think we will discover that Wilder, although he's a big puncher, he hasn't really got anything else, and I and I believe that because of that, when you, if you had say, I mean, even looking at Vito Antefermo, for instance, if he was a heavyweight, you know, and you was to say you're doing pound for pound, for instance, and you look at him against Wilder, he 
he beats Wilder because he's got the better skills. I mean, saying that he's still got the, the big punch, but I think I think when you put it in perspective, I, I don't think the opponent for Fury was as good as another opponent, which will come on later on. But it was a mag- at the end of the day, as you say, as I'm watching it, um, it is it's a history making fight because he beats Wilder up. He doesn't just beat him. He doesn't just knock him out with one shot. He beats him every single round, and I think that's why, you know, as as, as I say, with, with perspective. I'm eventually he might we might find that that this is a greater fight than it was maybe Wilder might come back and and beat him who knows but it was a magnificent night and, and you can't knock Tyson Fury it has to be in the top ten without a shadow of that. So another one then let's go through to another one which will probably surprise a few people I think and I don't think it's one that jumps out at people as one where you think yeah that was an upset that was one where uh, that, that comes off the tip of my tongue so this was. Back in 2004, on the 30th of July, my birthday, Danny Williams, 31-3, and three, taking on Mike Tyson, who was 50-4 and four at this point, and way past his best, of course. And it was in Louisville, <laughs> Kentucky, so we knew at this point Mike Tyson was no longer at his destructive best, well past his peak. But the right hand at the end of the fourth round, which sent Tyson reeling into the ropes and out for the count was still completely unexpected. No one give Danny Williams a chance here. Let's be honest, no one give Danny Williams a chance to go and beat a guy like Mike Tyson. Regardless of how past his peak Mike Tyson was, Danny Williams was only British level. So as far as we were concerned as fight fans, we were thinking Tyson's going to walk through him regardless of, of how past his best he is. But yeah, he went in, Danny Williams, and he caused uh, an upset, even at that stage of Tyson's career. And I remember watching that particular fight and being shocked at how Danny Williams was able to seemingly just dismantle Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson's punches are getting wider and he's relying more on that winging right hand as opposed to the punches with leverage. And look at Williams now pushing him off. A la Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis and he's having his way. Firing shots. Tyson in some difficulty. Here in round four. Oh, mate, I, I'm with you. I mean, the reason why I would put this above the Fury, which people may look at and think, well, why would you even put that ahead of Wilder? But the Fury Wilder fight. But for me, Danny Williams, as you say, he was a British fighter. I mean, today it's like, I suppose it's sort of like Derek Chisora knocking out, I suppose, Wilder, or even knocking out Fury, for instance. It, like, probably not Fury, but mate, or Klitschko. You know what I mean? It's that sort of that sort of feel to it where Danny Williams didn't have a chance. I mean, the fact was. I believe that Danny possibly could beat Tyson, but even on a bad night, I thought Tyson was going to beat him. But to knock him out the way he did was just remarkable, and it was completely unexpected. And, and I remember watching his fight in 2004, like you, and I was in just shocked. I couldn't believe what I just witnessed. I could not believe Danny Williams did it. And it, no one, everybody wrote him off, and, and I think that's what makes this so special. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't a world-level fighter, Danny. You know, when he did fight world-level, he got exposed, and... and to do that to Tyson, who was 50-4 and four at the time, and he had those four defeats, what, Buster Douglas, two to Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis, you're talking about elite fighters there, and I know it's towards the end of his career, he was overweight, yes, but even then, I mean, what a great shot, and what, what a finish from Danny Williams, so it has to be in there as one of the, the greatest ever performances from 
the lower level guys of the British British fight game. Yeah, I agree. I do agree. And if you've not heard our career profile on Mike Tyson, then go and check it out on the Careers Profile podcast. We've got a full, in-depth, detailed career profile of his life outside and inside of the ring. Go and check that one out. So this is one that definitely comes up as fantastic performances from a Brit abroad and one that would also be classed as quite a big upset. This was when Kirkland Lang went over to Michigan and fought Roberto Duran. So Roberto Duran at this point, 74 and 3. Kirkland Lang, 23, 3 and 1, September the 4th, 1982. The gifted one, Kirkland Lang, picked up the Ring Magazine upset of the year and a brilliant performance that gets overshadowed by the below-par performance from Duran. Now, considering that Duran had only lost to Esteban de Zeus, Ray Leonard, and Wilfred Benita before this, it just goes to show you that if Kirkland Lang would have been more devoted to boxing rather than booze, women, and weed, he probably (laughs) could have gone on to be something special. And it's a sad, sad bittersweet tale, really, because we talk about this this fight and best British performance abroad, and you think to yourself, where is this guy now? As far as I know, this guy's struggling still. Yeah, yeah, apparently so. He, he has disappeared. I don't know too much about what's so There was a documentary, I, I believe it was the BBC that did it, and, and he is a guy that... Uh, that yeah, he just disappeared off the scene, and, and it's been quite sad, really. But you know, it, what his performance against against Duran again, people like a bit like the Danny Williams situation where guys will knock it, but you know, Kirtland Lang, you know, it's, it's well documented that he loved his weed, he loved his women, and uh, it's actually it was according uh, to a biography by a guy called Oliver Jurette as well. He said that Lang was stoned for for many of his fights, <laughs> and only ever took the threat of one opportunity seriously or one opponent seriously and that was Roberto Duran so you know it does make you think if he if he'd have taken it a lot more seriously than he did he could have gone on to do some great things and he was the gifted one he was an excellent fighter really really good fighter and the fact that yeah Duran had had a long career I mean you're looking at 74 and 3 at the time but you look at the three guys again only Esteban Jesus which is early in his career he beat him recovered to beat him twice and then obviously the Ray Leonard in the rematch and then Wolf Benny I mean what, how much of a fantastic fighter did he go on to become so an, a, an amazing performance from Curtin and Land over in Detroit in, in 82 the year I was born before I was born and you know it just shows you that um, you know he had, he had this carefree attitude uh, Curtin and Lang and and he's, it was that was his life. He was a very laid back person. Um, but what what an amazing upset! And nobody, I mean, even Boxing News, fought so little of Lang's chances that they actually bemoaned about the contest uh, actually being allowed to take place. So that's how much of an underdog he was. People did not even want him to fight. So amazing achievement from Curtin Lang, and one that shouldn't be forgotten. No, definitely shouldn't be forgotten. It's just a shame that he, as a person, seems to have been forgotten about. And I think something that you know i think we would love to explore a bit more about some of these forgotten men of boxing that would certainly be an enjoyable sit down podcast to go through so sticking with the subject at hand and another man that crops up in our podcast yet again in this list in particular 
It's Tyson Fury. Yeah, again, it's one that you alluded to a little bit earlier when he was 24-0 and he took on Vladimir Klitschko. He was 64-3 at the time from the Espirit Arena in Dusseldorf, Germany, November the 28th, 2015. Vladimir, he'd been the world heavyweight champion since 2005. After that rocky sort of start to a career where he took them losses to Sanders and Brewster, and he got Stewart in his corner. Remember the late, great Emmanuel Stewart? He turned everything around. So from 2005 to 2015, he just dominated the division. And it was just the era of the Klitschko's at that point, with Vitaly in and out of the game, obviously winning WBC heavyweight title, and then retiring, then coming back and winning it back. It was just the era of the Klitschko's, and a difficult era for boxing fans, because a lot of people really didn't like the style of Vladimir Klitschko in particular. So you got this guy who came along, this cocky, Mancunian guy in Tyson Fury, who would be infamous in his post-fight interviews and his ringside interviews. And as British fight fans, we didn't know whether to love him or to hate him. And going over to Dusseldorf in Germany was a task which you would automatically think is monumentous just because of the sole fact is that was like the Klitschko's adopted home. They're Ukrainian, but they love Germany as well and they love being in Germany. So they always fought a lot of their fights there. So this was a case of how's Fury going to go over to Germany, a place where it's literally the epitome of the lion's den for the Klitschko's. And how's he going to go over and beat a guy like Klitschko? He's going to have to knock him out to beat him. But that's not what entailed. No, no, it wasn't. It was it was a dominating display from from a young Tyson Fury, and he was uh, he was cocksure of himself. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. You know, in the press conferences, he he played the mind games with Vlad Klitschko. I think Vlad fell fell into that, um, and you know he he didn't he just didn't throw the right hand that fight. I mean, it wasn't the best of fights. He definitely isn't a fight that necessarily I would go back and watch to enjoy. It'd be more. On a, you know, if, if you like Tyson Fury and you like what he brings to the table, then certainly go back and watch this because it is a dominating display. I mean, Klitschko is just, he's just a shadow of himself in there. I still can't quite figure out if there was something wrong or if Tyson Fury is just too good. I think probably a bit of both, maybe more edging towards a Tyson Fury being too good for him that night because he was outstanding and and it was boring. It wasn't the best of performances. You know, we've already seen his best performance was against Wilder. But, you know, it just shows you the Klitschko being do- such a dominating fighter. For, for those 10 years, a whole decade he dominated and tries to use the man that goes over to Germany, his own backyard, absolutely beats him to bits. I mean, every single round, more or less, I'll give to him, apart from maybe one or two. Other than that, it was a clear sweep for Tyson Fury and a magnificent performance from him. We go to the scorecards. Cesar Ramos scores at 115 to 112. The same score from Raul Caiz Sr. 115-112. And Ramon Serdan scores at 116-111. All three scores to the winner by unanimous decision. From the United Kingdom, the new We're moving up to the top three now. The top three that have been put down in our list as fantastic, amazing performances from Brits abroad. And the next one on the list is from 1970, September the 26th, when Ken Buchanan took on Ishmael Laguna in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
At this point in time, the legendary Scott had only fought at British and European level. And before this fight, his only loss actually came on foreign soil against Miguel Velasquez in Spain. So, he'd picked up a loss in his career. He was 36-1 at the time, going against Ismail Laguna, 63-6-1. The referee refused to say how he marked the fight after awarding Velasquez that points victory against Ken Buchanan, <laughs> which is <laughs> a bit sus, isn't it? <laughs> a bit, a bit strange, really. Uh, just, yeah. just, just a little bit strange. Now, later that year, he fought in the scorching heat of San Juan and beat the Panamanian legend and Roberto Duran hero Laguna in a close fight by split decision, which was one four four one four three to Laguna and one four four one four three and one four five one four four to Buchanan and. I think what did it for him in this particular fight is the second half of the fight. And if anybody's already seen it, you'll know what we're talking about. For the benefit of the people that may have not have watched it, I think when you start to look into the second half of this fight, you start to see where Buchanan comes on stronger. And I think from sort of, I think about six, seven rounds in, I think I was starting to look at it and think, actually, he's coming back here. Obviously, I already knew the result when watching it because this was way before my time as well. But when watching it back, he starts to really analyse how things went down. And as they come to the second half of the fact, that's where Ken Buchanan took over, really. And, and, and that's how he got that victory over Laguna, in my eyes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, from from the 12th round onwards, he, he, he pretty much he, he took the fight uh, for me. I mean, in that heat as well in Puerto Rico, that's, that's another element. You know, as, when you mentioned the, the, the Vasquez fight, I think that there's a good point to mention that, you know, that one defeat probably wasn't really a defeat. It was a close fight, but it was sort of given to the Spaniard. Whereas, so going into this fight against Laguna, Laguna was a hero, a national hero. And although he had lost six fights, 63 wins, he was a, a well-accomplished world champion. Uh, and um, for, for Ken to go over there and, and do what he did, he had to win it convincingly. And I believe he did. And he took it from sort of, as you say, that the second half of the fight was all Ken Buchanan. He had him up in, at one point where he's, he really liked he was going to stop him. He, he did go on to get the win. He ended up getting that close decision, which was just a magnificent win for, you know, I think it cements Ken Buchanan as the greatest ever Scottish fighter. If not, you know, he, he at least, if he isn't in the top 10 of the greatest British fighters of all time, I would say something's not quite right. For me, I think he just edges in there 100%. And this is a a real reason for it. And the fact is, I mean, the, the next crazy thing was that he won the MY SAC lightweight title. We didn't actually pick up the WBA because Great Britain had this problem with, with the WBA where you, you couldn't fight, the, you couldn't you couldn't defend the WBA lightweight or the WBA title with any weight on British soil. You had to fight overseas. So what he did was he made Madison Square Garden his adoptive home and that's where he defended his title against Laguna again. But this time he beat him quite convincingly in the Mecca of Boxing. So this was a fan, fabulous win for Ken Buchanan. And, and the fact that it was in Puerto Rico, for me, edges most fights. And the fact that it was against Laguna, who was an actual hero over there. At number two, we've gone for John H. Strasher, who was 42-3-1, who went over to Mexico City on December the 6th, 1975, and took on and defeated the great 
Jose Napoli, who was 81-6 and six at the time John H. Tracy went over there to fight him. Now, obviously, Jose Napoli, again, if you don't know him, go and look him up. Absolute fantastic fighter. The Cuban fighter. We know what the Cuban fighters and the system's like over there. He produces some amazing fighters. The Cuban was a dominant welterweight world champion for four years, but then he eventually had to move up to the middleweight division against the great Carlos Monzon for better competition where he failed to answer the bell for the seventh round. This would be Napoli's last professional fight against the Londoner, who got off the floor in the first round to beat and cut Napoli so severely that the bout was stopped in the sixth in front of 60,000 people in attendance. So not only did John H. Tracy go over to Mexico City, the place where Napoli had kind of made his... Again, you said about Ken Buchanan, it was a little bit like Napoli's adoptive home. Even though he was a Cuban, he got a massive fan base in Mexico at the time and people really were were longing for a new champion in South America. You know, you had guys like Carlos Monzon, obviously, who who he was talking about, uh, and other fighters that were coming out around this time as well. And for John H. Tracy to go over there and beat up Napoli the way he did was absolutely unbelievable. And why we've picked it as our number two of greatest British performances abroad, and and I think I think the the extra thing is as well is that you know Stracey was a Londoner. He's going over to Acapulco, you know, in in heat. I mean, again, this is a this is a major question. I think that's what many people believe. A bit like Buchanan, where heat exhaust, heat exhaustion was probably going to be an element more than anything. Whereas Jose Napoli, obviously, he was going to be he was confident. He fought there regularly, but you know, the fact was. No, Jose Napoli's was a, an absolute champion. I mean, this guy, if you'd done pound, if there was pound for pound list back then and we were running them out and it was social media out, Jose Napoli's would have been up in the top, top two, top three comfortably. He was that much of a, a dominant worldweight. But to do it in, 60, in front of 60,000, which were clearly rude for Napoli's, you know, it, it's, it's just a DMR. In Mexico, John H. Jason must have just, he, he must not have been able to believe just how, how, how much of a fantastic. Achievement. I mean, I, I dread to think. I mean, it must have been amazing for him. I mean, even Napoli's after was a bit, you know, he was a bit of a spoiler as well. He came out and said the cut, because of the cut, he couldn't see. And he made a bundle of excuses saying if he could have knocked him out any round if it weren't for the cut, he, he, he was he was basically outclassed by John Stracey. And, and again, an amazing performance from from this Londoner. And it's just, it's just a great, great win. For, for a Brit overseas. Last but certainly not least, and the number one pick, I think by many people for a British fighter that's gone abroad and performed amazingly, is Lloyd Hunnigan, the ragamuffin man, 27-0, and <laughs> taking on Donald Curry, who was 25-0, and and this was a fight where people considered it to be a complete mismatch. It was September the 20, 27th, 1986, and it was that much of a mismatch according to some bookmakers that they refused to actually even issue a betting line on this particular fight now Lloyd Hunnigan was confident that he could go over there and beat Curry and he actually was that confident that he bet $5,000 on himself at 5 to 1 odds and then Curry (laughs) defended the WBA WBC and IBF welterweight titles in a shock defeat that was named the ring upset of the year for 1986. When Donald Curry returns to his corner after the sixth round with blood flowing down his face and you look at the deep gash that's over his left eye, he just shook his head. And that's the amazing part about it. He just shook his head and turned around and told his corner, I'm through. And they were the words he used. <laughs> and that was it. 
and Lloyd Hunnigan literally beat the fight out of him to become the WBA, WBC and IBF welterweight champions of the world. He's got to have that professional's care a bit now, Hunnigan. He's, he's got this championship well within his grasp, but he mustn't make mistakes. And he looks so weary, shaking his head as he goes back to the corner there. And I'm wondering if it all could be over as the doctor comes in as well. And there's a lot of consternation there in the corner. You can see the referee looking over. And it looks as though they're sending for a second opinion. Another doctor coming in. As we look at the replay there, well, it may have been a head clash. Who knows what caused it. And he's become champion of the world, Hannigan. And he's just thrown himself across the ring. Mickey Duff's lying on the floor with him. It is really incredible because that is one of the biggest turn-ups, I'm going to say it, in the history of boxing. Because Don Curry, let's face it, was unbeaten and looked unbeatable. And this fellow, Lloyd Hannigan from London, really did the business in every way. And I've never seen such a joyous scene at an end of a fight as you will with that one. We spoke about Jose Napoli's uh, high, highly ranked and highly thought of. He was, Donald Curry was the same. He was a, an undisputed worldweight champion. I mean, an undisputed worldweight champion in today's game. But we're talking about El Spence and, and Terence Crawford. I mean, it's, Lloyd Hunnigan, although undefeated 27-0, had not fought at this level. Nobody gave him a shot. Nobody gave him a chance. The betting lines were close. I mean, it's insane. He, he goes and sticks five grand at himself at five to one. I mean, if went in confident, that's brilliant. And, uh, and this was just supposed to be uh, another uh, another knockout. That's basically what it was. Donald Curry was it was just a matter of him going in there, and it was just going to be Hunnigan was just going to be another victim for the Cobra. But he gave him a performance that um, I mean, it, it is a, a brilliant performance. And I think you need to really understand what Donald Curry was about at the time because when you watch it and you see Lord Hunnigan absolutely bash him up to the point where Donald Curry says, "I've had enough. I mean, I'm through." It just says to you just, just how magic that night was. And it was a real magical night. And one that I still can't put above anything else. I just think that that is, I think many people will say it's the best. I mean, I know obviously you know, the, the, the Fury Wilder, which many believe was better than that. Not for me. Donald Curry was a machine and um, a great, great win for, for Lloyd Hunnigan. Uh, the underdog. I love to see the underdog come for a win. We all do, especially when a Brit does it over in America. Great, great win. No, it was a great win. Really, really great win. And that is why we've both voted for this as number one. And I think many people do have that as the number one pick for best British performance away from home. And obviously, there's so many more. We tried to encapsulate as many as we possibly could. So I've got a little list of a few here, which I think people will agree are great performances away from home. Joe Calzaghe went over to the Thomas and Mack Centre in Nevada and took on none other than... I'll never let a white man beat me, Bernard Hopkins. <laughs> Kawasaki, down in the opening round, managed to get off the canvas and win a split decision, which was uh, a bit of a spoil fest of a fight from Bernard and Hopkins' perspective, but an unbelievably great win for Joe Kawasaki, although people didn't really appreciate that victory at the time. And uh, Joe Kawasaki is another guy we've done a career profile on, and I think if you've not heard our full in-depth career profile on Joe Calzaghe's super middleweight light heavyweight career. Please go and check it out on that podcast. But this one then, Johnston, Joe Calzaghe, Bernard Hopkins. I think this is one of them fights that people didn't appreciate at the time because it was a little bit of a spoil fest. But then when you look at what Bernard Hopkins goes to do after this fight, I think that kind of makes me feel like this was more of an even greater win back then. Oh, absolutely. Again, the, the time 
puts it into perspective. You know, what what at the time you don't quite realise it, and then later on you realise how good even Bernard Hopkins was still, how good he still was at the time, and and he was still doing having some great victories, and and Joe Calzaghe going over to Thomas and Mac, you know, and the other problem with Calzaghe was everyone said he didn't travel. And he went over there, gets put down in the first round and comes back to Big Bernard Hopkins. You can't knock it. All right, they were both at a bit of a ripe page, but Bernard Hopkins was like a flipping fine wine. He just kept going. He just matured uh, and got better. Uh, Calzaghe, obviously, I think this is his second to last fight, wasn't it? Um, uh, before, was it was it before Jones Jr.? I think it was. Yes. Another good victory from, from, from Calzaghe that night as well. So, he went out and he fought the two best in the night heavyweight division at the time. So, yeah, great, great win for Joe Calzaghe. And, and the other one we've got on here is another guy that we everybody thought, you know, the first, when I think of Joe Calzaghe, unfortunately, Cole Frotch does come to mind. And Cole Frotch, uh, Calzaghe didn't quite get it on, but he did a similar thing. He went over to America at Foxwoods Resort and Casino up in Connecticut, and he beat Jermaine Taylor on April 25th, 2009, uh, which was a year after the Calzaghe Bernardes fight. And it is one of the most greatest comebacks of all time, really, especially from a British fighter and, and Frotch. Obviously, stopped Taylor really late in that 12th round, that final round. Uh, we have done a legendary night. Go and have a listen to it. It's a great listen and, and a great encounter. And, and oh, I mean, you remember this one, Sean Finley, didn't you as well? Cole Fox, what a stunning finish that was, eh? Taylor holding on. He ran out of gas. Frotch. Does he have it in him? Frotch. Taylor staggering. They're ready to stop it. That, that finish from Carl Frotch. The commentary, I think it's the commentary that kind of gets me going more than anything is, is the American commentary that we're covering it at the time and they're just going nuts when Frotch comes back and it's like, and oh, it's Frotch, oh, Frotch. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is, this, you know, that's amazing. Just the commentary does play a massive part in, in how we how we interpret and how we get excited for a fight. It certainly does. And that was no different. Carl Frotch beating Jermaine Taylor there with only seconds to go on the clock. So that was an epic victory and some people might have put that in their top 10 just because of how emphatic of a comeback it ended up being so another one then uh, it's colin jones versus hans hendrik palm in copenhagen in denmark on november the 5th 1982 colin jones goes on to knock the european out inside only two rounds picking up that great victory so this is one probably more for the oldies not for ourselves this is before our time colin jones knocking out hans henrik palm in copenhagen so one which kind of was a probably around about the time as a young lad i was i was getting sort of pushed down the route of of boxing and it was when the great nigel ben went and took on Doug DeWitt at Caesars Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City on April the 29th, 1990. So we know Nigel Ben's style, we know he loves to scrap, we know he loves to take a few, to give a few, and in this particular fight, he was down in the second round. But he decides, you know what, 
when I go down, I get back up and I go and put the other guy down. And that is exactly what he did. And he goes and puts DeWitt down once in the third and three times in the eighth to win the WBO Super Middleweight title. He defended it in Las Vegas four months later and another terrific performance for a Brit overseas by going on to stop Iron Barkley in the first round. Also, by three-time knockdown rule, which... If you've not heard any of the stuff we've done on Nigel Ben, then I highly recommend, as always, you go and check out the Legendary Night series because we've done one on Eubank and Ben and we've done one on Ben and McClellan as well. So please go and check out the Legendary Nights podcast. But yeah, Johnston, Nigel Ben, Doug Dewitt, this is, a, like I say, around about the time as a young lad and really yeah. starting to get pushed into boxing and another great fight and another great performance from British fighter away. Yeah, and both them fights, we still about to stick them in there because obviously... Ben on the back of that Watson defeat as well. He went to America to 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 change his style to try and become more of a boxer, a boxer punch rather than just a an all out war machine. And <laughs> looking at those two fights, he was basically just the same old Ben. But um, two great epic victories for, for Ben there. And uh, yeah, I mean the Doug DeWitt one probably edges it. It was a great night for him and a great year for him for 1990. And then we move on to uh, to Jock McAvoy versus Eddie Babe Risco. And now this was this is an interesting one because this is a non-title fight and it was in December 1935. Now, Jock McAvoy was, his real name was actually Joseph Bamford and he actually changed his name because back in these days, they used to change their names to stop their mothers from finding out they were boxing. So that's why he was called uh, Jock McAvoy. But at the end of the, end of the day, he knocked down a reigning middleweight champion ruler for six times he knocked him down in the first round in a stoppage, but he never managed to get the rematch to, for the belt at stake. So, unlucky for Jock. He didn't quite get that chance to fight Risco again, but, you know, another great win for, from a Brit overseas. So, another one then, I'll, I'll, again, one that's quite recent in my memory, David Hay, when he went and took on the giant Nikolai Valuev in Nuremberg in Germany, November the 7th, 2009 Hay beats the seven foot giant via majority decision to become the WBA world heavyweight champion successfully moving up from cruiserweight after unifying the cruiserweight division and winning that world heavyweight championship in what was a very calculated performance it wasn't an exciting fight because obviously there was a massive difference between the two of them of course but Adam Booth, the master tactician in that corner and that night, had the right game plan for David Hay and it worked a treat. And my memories of this particular fight will always be the final round of the fight when after all that back and forward pot shotting from David Hay, just landing the shots and getting out, he manages to land a right hand on the chin of Valuev, which stumbles Valuev. And at one point you actually think to yourself, he's going down and my memories of watching that fight was absolutely going bananas at the fact that I thought <laughs> David Hay nearly had him down and that was going to signify the end of the fight. But ultimately, he dominated that fight and there was no way, there's no way the Germans could have robbed this one from him. No, no, and I remember him, him landing that haymaker as well in the last round. I sort of wished it was a couple of rounds sooner because I think he would have probably got rid of value. But, you know, seven foot, I mean, the car was an absolute monster. I mean, he's just, it's, 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 it's just incredible, really, the size of the fella. So, you know, he wasn't as agile and uh, good, a good performance from David A. Uh, so, so moving on, we've got one of, uh, one of the, the Manchester and British heroes and one of the greatest ever fighters uh, the Brit- Britain have ever produced. And, of course, that's Ricky Atten. 
And he, uh, this is the one where he fights Lewis Colazzo at the TD Gardens in Boston, Massachusetts on May 13, 2006. And this is the time when Hatton dipped his toes into the middleweight division. Um, and although in those first six rounds, he, he looked like he was pretty much comfortable. And then, and then Colazzo came back at him in that latter stages of the fight and give him hell. And uh, he ended up going on to win by unanimous decision. But it was, a, it was an insight for Hatton and, and just shows you that just jumping up that extra weight, you know, coming from light world way up into to the world weight division showed that the size difference obviously mattered, but it was good for Hatton. It was a good way. Obviously, he, he did jump back down after, I think, for the next three fights in the after. It was a real good fight and a good performance from Ricky out there. It was it was a good performance for the majority of the fight, but the one thing it did show me, looking back on it now with hindsight, is that he was too small for the welterweight division and he managed to get away with one, really, against Luis Calazzo because that second half of the fight, right, probably said the last three rounds of it, Luis Calazzo was, was really, really putting it on him really hard. And at one point where he was getting through with some really clean shots and I genuinely thought... He was gonna he was gonna put Hatton to sleep at that point because he was he was landing. He was landing quite heavily. And I think anybody else in the division, anybody that may have been slightly harder of a puncher than Luis Calazo was, and I'm telling you now, that would have been a disastrous night at the office for, for Ricky Hatton at that point in time. Obviously we, we know about his career and where he was coming from at this point. He decided to move up and we also know obviously what he went on to, to go and do in the sport, but this particular night is a performance from a Brit abroad, which, although it wasn't a, a stellar performance, it was a real ground-out victory for, for Ricky Hatton that night. He absolutely was. Absolutely. And he did grind it out and got the win. So, you know, that's the main thing. Another one, which was an interesting one, because I think it gets forgotten because he has so many so many terrific fights. And that's Cole Foch against Arthur, Ab- Arthur Abraham. Now, although Arthur Abraham, Arthur Abraham so it was, was German... They did fight in Helsinki, Finland, which is a bit more close to him. He would have been a bit more comfortable in that environment. And Cole Froch had to go over there and put in a performance. And it was actually on November 27th, which was my birthday as well, um, in 2010. And Cole, I thought, was absolutely dominated. Arthur Abraham, who was... And I mean, Abraham was a classy fighter. And Cole made him look very ordinary that night. And I think it's one of Cole's best performances. He dominated him. He was classy. And he just, he, he's just outstanding. And I do think he just gets overlooked with all the other victories with Groves and with, with Taylor. But this is one that um, we should fondly remember. It was a bit of a miserable year for him, uh, the early part <laughs> of it, because he obviously had that big fight with Kessler, which was a really good fight. And then, obviously, after getting that loss, he decides to obviously come back as part of the, the Super 6 series and goes on to beat Arthur Abraham, which was a... Probably his most dominant performance, as you rightly pointed out. I think with that performance there, I think he proved that he, he could match it with with different styles, really. I think that was the, yeah. the difference here, is that he'd, he'd been in with all these different types of opponents, and, and Arthur Abraham was one there you expected to be able to come in and, and, and slug it out with Carl Froch, but he didn't, and he just kind of... It was quite static, and Carl Froch just, just dominated him with flurries of punches, so it was... I think it was a really good display and one of his underrated performances. I think people don't really talk about the Arthur Abraham performance too much because they consider, obviously, the, the Groves fights and the Kessler fights to be the ones that define Carl Foch's career. But this is definitely one that you should go back and have a quick look at just to sort of see what Carl Froch was like at adapting to different styles back then. So... That was another one. Now, another one that missed out on the top 10 was James DeGale taking on Andre Durrell at the Agnanis Arena in Boston, Massachusetts on May the 23rd, 2015. 
Now, Jamesy Gale, also known as Chunky, floored Darrell twice to win the IBF Super Middleweight Strap. Later that year, he went on to defend it against Lucien Booty in Canada. So, that particular year for James DeGale was James DeGale's defining year of his professional career because he went on to win the world title then went on to defend it and both of them fights the Darrell and Butte fights were really really tough fights and, and it's I think it's in my opinion I think these were the two fights that took a hell of a lot out of him following on with the Badu Jack fight I think them three fights that James DeGale had between 2015-2016 were for me the fights that sort of finished DeGale essentially it took each one of them took a piece of him out of that fight, mm-hmm. and I think they were what led to him really declining in his career quite quickly. I agree with you. I mean, it, this is the point where you, you... Not many British fighters as well went on the road. He was a bit of a road warrior at this time, wasn't he? He, didn't, he hadn't fought in Britain in this time for about three or four years, and, and he had fought in everyone's backyard, and he'd beaten them. And I think people don't really give him the respect, you know. And uh, Andre Durrell wasn't a, a fantastic fighter. He was a good fighter. But he, he, again, it was it was it was a very close fight. But he put him down twice, wins that title, and in the Butte fight in Canada, in his own backyard again, and beats him. And you know, we all thought what Lucy and Butte was about before he sort of stepped in with Carl Frotch. But you know, end of the day, it, that is a is a great significant year for the gal, and one that again, you know, you can't sort of just sweep under the carpet. It shows just how good he was. And and I think another one which which I stuck on here, it was a it's a close one. It was a very close fight and many people may have even gone the other way but it was Cole Frampton against Leo Santa Cruz at the Barclays Centre in Brooklyn in July 2016 and, and Frampton won by majority decision to win the WBA featherweight title and I think again that is a, a pinnacle time for Cole Frampton and, and it was a, a great display from him against Leo Santa Cruz who's still considered to be one of the best at the minute although Cole obviously after the Warrington defeat is sort of in a bit of a I don't know, we don't really know what's happening with Cold. I mean, is he coming back or isn't he? Uh, I don't know if we should call it a day or not. We'll see. But a great win for Cole against uh, Leo Santa Cruz before obviously going on to lose to him in the rematch. Great performance from Carl Frampton that night. For me, that was Carl Frampton's career-defining performance. And I know you mentioned there, just briefly about we don't know what's happening with him. Before, obviously, coronavirus took over the world, he was scheduled... Well, it wasn't officially announced, but they were scheduling him to fight against Jamal Herring uh, in Belfast. That was what was on the table, which would have been a great fight for for the world title there. So that should hopefully still happen by the end of of this year, 2020, and hopefully we'll get to see whether Cal Frampton has enough left to become a world champion once more. And I think it's quite possible he can do that. I'd just like to see whether he can or he can't, but this particular night that we're talking about, the Leo Santa Cruz night, was the, the one that I think... If he doesn't go on to win another world title, this is what he'll be remembered by, is this particular fight. Him going over and winning a majority decision to win the WBA featherweight title. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I kind of disagree with you at all there. I think four years ago now, hopefully he can find something. I mean, he did give Warren a great fight. Warren's at the peak of his, his career at the minute. So who knows? Maybe he can pick up. I hope he does. I mean, I really do. And then one, just late on the list, man, it was a bit of a, an ad hoc, but it's a great win. And again, for a, for a guy that fought at world level a couple of times, come up short and finally got his chance. And that was dazzling Darren Barker, his, his win over Daniel Gill. And it was a really emotional watch that. And it was in August, 2013, had a reveal result in Atlantic City and, and dazzling Darren somehow rose from his feet from that devastating body shot to win it on points. And that body shot, I thought it was all over. I'll be honest with you. 
I, I really weren't sure if Darren was going to do it. He gets up from that shot, and I was still expecting it to be finished. He fought on, wins on points, and and it was a you know for him personally it is a major win and, and a great win for for a British fighter again overseas. That makes up the other ones that didn't get into the list that we put together, and I think it's now time to go into the final segment of this particular show, which is focused mainly on British fighters' performances abroad. And let's not forget about the nearly men, the men that tried so hard to either win a title or defend a title abroad and just came out unsuccessfully. Or fighters where they would just go in against big names. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Like You you took the words right out of my mouth there, legends. So let's talk about a few of them on the list then. So the first one we've got on our list is Randolph Turpin. Randy Turpin versus Sugar Ray Robinson in their rematch in September 1951 at the Polo Grounds in New York. It was a very close one on the scorecards, and the referee was one round away from stopping it, but actually allowed Sugar Ray Robinson to continue, resulting in the pound-for-pound king stopping Turpin in round number 10. And again, little cheap plug yet again, it's Sugar Ray Robinson's career profile. We did it quite recently. You might have already listened to it, but if you haven't, please go and check out his career profile. Brilliant. It's a very long one, but it's a very enjoyable, factual one. So this fight also came up in that career profile. Randy Turpin, Sugar Ray Robinson. Obviously, putting a bit of context to it, Randy Turpin beat Sugar Ray Robinson to win the title. And this was the rematch, the one where Randy Turpin was so close to be able to defend that title. And the legend that was Sugar Ray Robinson just nicked it at the end. Yes, he did. He was cut and the referee was ready to call it because it was a bad cut. So he was giving him the extra round. And within that time, Turpin just couldn't stay away. Uh, you know, he was a legend anyway. So Turpin did what he needs to do in a bundle that night. So good on him. But this is the one. I mean, this is all overseas. Absolutely. We are all, every single fight we will discuss is all overseas. But there is one fight in particular that I can't help but throw in, and it is literally because it's against the greatest of all time, which is Mamed Ali. And it is, I know it's at Wembley Stadium. Obviously, it Ali came here, but I just think this is such a pinnacle time for 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 British for British heavyweight boxing. It was Henry Cooper when he fought Cassius Clay, or Mohammed, you know that was his name at the time. And and I just think it's something we need to just throw in because the significance of this fight. And I mean, this is this is just the nearly men. So I mean, just imagine if Henry Cooper landed that Henry Zammer right on the button, right in the middle of the ring, and Cassius Clay went down, and he didn't land on the ropes, and he was out for the count. What significance that would have had in British heavyweight boxing, especially, I mean, Henry Cooper was a legend in a way, but for that, I mean, it's the only reason why I threw it in there. It's just, it's just a, <laughs> a thing I always think about, because, you know, he lived up the road from me in Bellingham, and, and he's just a guy I adore, and I just think he was just you know, an absolute legend, and I just think, just imagine, just imagine if you beat Cassius <laughs> that night. <laughs> I bet, um, I bet that'd be a good episode to do the uh, episode of ifs and buts and what would have happened if this would have happened. Quite an interesting one to throw in there, a little bit of a curveball to throw in, and uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely a legendary, a legendary moment. And although it didn't turn out the right way for Henry Cooper on that night, it certainly provided us one of the most memorable moments in boxing history. Of course it did. So just moving on for a few more, we've got Howard Winston versus Vicente Saldiva in a rematch of 1967 in the high altitude of Mexico City. The Welshman lost a very close decision against the world-class Southpaw. And this man comes up for a third time in the episode 
Tyson Fury, yet again, in his first bout with Deontay Wilder at the Staples Centre in Los Angeles on December the 1st, 2018. It's publicly well known what Tyson Fury came back from and the way he brought himself back from the brink of despair to be able to go in against Deontay Wilder, the feared champion, and go in there and get a draw against him, which seemingly felt like a win. And I believe it was a win, and I know you believe it was a win, but it was one where I think what would have happened if Fury would have got the win that night, that that's another what if, but it was obviously yeah. aligned to be in the stars that he would get that recognition for coming back from what he came back from and then go on to do what he emphatically did earlier on this year. Yeah, it was, I mean, it has to go in there because it is a, a nearly a nearly away win because um, obviously it comes as draw. It should have been a win. If he'd have got that and then done what he did in the second fight, I don't think we'd even be contemplating a third because I think uh, it would be pretty much all over. I don't see why Wilder would go there. Again, it, even the third one still for me, I still don't quite get it. But, you know, it's, it looks like it's still going to happen. But yeah, what Fury should have got that win? I mean, the other one for me, this was a, I remember watching the next one here, which is Martin Murray against Sergio Martinez in Buenos Aires in, in Argentina. And he lost in 2013 after knocking him down in the eighth as well. And I really thought that Murray won that. I mean, I know it's probably not a robbery such, but it was a tough one for Martin Murray to take. And I think he should have been given a nod on that night but unfortunately he lost it to Sergio Myers who was a great absolute legend I think the one that was worse than that was the one against Felix Sturm in December of 2011 where Murray picked up a controversial draw and that was worse than the Martinez one. I think he 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 won the fight against yeah. Felix Sturm for me. I mean people think Martinez fight was was an absolute robbery but not so much more than the Felix Sturm fight. For me, I felt like he really did edge that fight and he beat Felix Sturm. And Felix Sturm, obviously, you know, being based in Germany, being German, everybody loved him in Germany. And no matter what you did with Felix Sturm over there, you just never be able to seem to get the decision against him. And this was another example of that, where Martin Murray went over there and, and seemingly put on probably his best performance, if not performance against Martinez but for me for me this was the night where Martin Murray should have become a world champion and also it happened to Matthew Macklin as well in the summer of 2011 a few months before the Martin Murray Felix Sturm fight Matthew Macklin was over there in Germany in Cologne lost a split decision which was absolutely ludicrous one of the worst robberies I've seen it was worse than Martin Murray Felix Sturm I think if you look at the two comparisons between the two fights six months apart if anybody out of them two that fought Felix Sturm should have won on their night it was Matthew Macklin he well and truly won that fight in 2011 and got absolutely shafted on the cards and that world title would would never get there for Matthew Macklin that was the chance that was his biggest opportunity the 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 biggest night of his life and it was stolen from him it was stolen from him by the judges on that night unfortunately and Matthew Macklin's a guy who you might not hear a lot about in any of our series based podcasts but we have got one particular fight that we urge you to go and listen to on the Legendary Night series and it's when he took on Jamie Moore in 2006 in one of the great British fights. Please go and check Macklin versus Moore. Brilliant one. So there's only one more to go through now, Johnston. Yes, yes. And that was Pat Cowdell against Salvador Sanchez. And, and Pat Cowdell, I mean, he, he was it was unfortunate for him that he came up against Two guys in a division that was, you know, Salvador Sanchez and Azuma Nelson. And they're the two guys 
that he had to try and fight to win a title from. It's unfortunate. Just somehow, you know, sometimes when you, when you find yourself in an era where you probably, if you threw him in today's division for for the super featherweight division, he probably would pick up a world title or a featherweight division. He, he fought with both. So this, it was just unfortunate it happened. And, and this was one fight against Salvador Sanchez. Now, he did lose the fight at the Astro Dome in Houston. But it was a, he did lose a split decision in, in a performance that basically showed he had pure class. It was from this performance from Salvador Sanchez, it, although, as I say, he lost it, but he got the Azuna Nelson fight. Just unfortunate. Sometimes you come up against two guys in your, in your division that are just elite. So Pat Crodell, who, who's a guy that people, not many will remember, but he's definitely, you know, he, he's up there in the top 100 British fighters. Yeah, this was a, it was a, it was an unlucky one for him that night, but it's just one, again, it, it, was, it was close. It was a close fight. I think Salvador Sanchez won the fight, but Pat Codell definitely deserves to be mentioned as, as a nearly man as well. That concludes our nearly man segment for the episode. And I think that pretty much concludes this episode, really, of British performances abroad and, and some of the best ones. And if there's any that you feel that we've missed off there, then obviously you've got to let us know about them because Please. we would love to hear other people's interpretations of, of certain fights that maybe we've missed off. So if you drop us a tweet at BTR Boxing Pod once you've had a listen to this and, and let us know if there's other ones that you could think of that would fall into that category or any of the ones that we've put on this list that you think were absolutely fantastic or you think were not as good as what we maybe made them out to be then obviously just just come at us and let us know i'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this obviously at the moment it's a bit of a difficult time for many people and there's just a lot of people scrambling to 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 sort of put out very very similar pieces of content and i think what we decided to do with the podcast is rather than try and bring you something that's pretty piss poor we'd rather bring you something even if it's only once every three to four weeks on the main feed we'd rather bring you something that is actually going to be a topical subject to discuss and a good trip down memory lane and i think this brits abroad episode that we've done is another one following on from our fantasy fights episode we did a few weeks ago yeah it certainly is and i think you know if any again if anyone has any ideas as well uh that you would like us to, to dig into and dig through the archives or something else we could try and bring for you to your ears. It is literally really difficult. It is tricky, isn't it, um, at this time? And we ain't getting no boxing, unfortunately. Let's just hope in the next month things change and uh, we can start getting some events on and start getting back to normality for our, for our own selves. And then hopefully we can start enjoying the sport again in, in boxing and, and any other sport you're into as well, uh, as well as you know, footballs and rugby, whatever. So, yeah, any any just give us some feedback. Let us know what we missed out. I'm sure we missed one show. I'm sure we did, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, there's that many of them to go through that. There's probably one or two that we've probably missed off and people will be going, I can't believe these two have not even gone yeah exactly exactly I know there'll be one but obviously if we have guys just let us know you know we'd really appreciate you know all the support and and the love we get from the listeners and and the reviews and the retweets and the shares everything that you're doing on social media for all the series we really really appreciate it because you know all the hours that we spend doing it is is not just for our benefit because we love doing it it's because there's other people out there that we know it gives 
you the opportunity to have a little bit of an escape from reality and, and I don't want to go too soppy on everyone with it but it's a very difficult time as John Sim was pointing out as well everybody's struggling everybody's trying to get by some people have not got jobs at the moment and they've been furloughed and they've not got any type of income coming in so you know we hope that it really really does give some sort of an escape from reality for some people and we really appreciate all the support that we're getting and, and we hope that everybody is staying safe we hope that everybody is trying to do the best they can with what they've got at the moment and if this is something that takes your mind off it even if it's only for an hour then fantastic we've done our job and we're really really happy and please let us know if it has because nothing makes my day better than seeing a message from somebody that said i've enjoyed listening to this because it's given me a bit of an escape or it's given me something to to focus on other than what's going on in the news at the moment so (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been it's been a, it's been a good it's been a good episode. I've really enjoyed it, Johnson. We well, we like these little special episodes. So as you've rightly pointed out to the listeners, if there is any other subjects that you do want us to cover for the main feed, whilst we're going through this period of time at the moment where there isn't any boxing on a weekly basis, then please let us know and we'll we'll definitely get something out to you as soon as you possibly can. So if you've not already subscribed to us, as always, come and check us out. All the podcasting apps out there, Apple, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, go and subscribe to us, get all the latest episodes. Why don't you go back and check through some of the older episodes, some of the Life and Times episodes that I've done with the likes of Angel Manfredi and Chad Dawson and Ryan Rhodes, to name but a few. Go and check a few of them out. The best boxing brawls episodes. If you've not heard them, go and go through the feed and find them because they're all there for you to listen to. And they're great episodes. Go and give them a listen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Brits Abroad. Thanks for listening, fight fans. Stay safe. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.